Here's another episode of the Evening Under Lamplight podcasts with Robert Louis Abrahamson. We come now to Canto 23 of Dante's Paradiso, entering the final third of this third part of the Divine Comedy. That is to say, that is to say, we are coming up to the end of Dante's long journey out of the dark woods of our confused, confusing life. We're working up to the climax of the poem, but before we get there, we still have ten cantos of preparation ahead of us. The last canto ended with that amazing perspective of Dante's gazing down on the tiny earth from the heights of the eighth sphere of heaven. So much for earth. His vision has been adjusted by this view, and he's ready for the experience of this sphere of the fixed stars. So what will happen now? Or we might also put it like this. How will Dante, the writer of this poem, follow up that vision? How will he present the highest themes for us in a vivid, coherent way? Well, as I said last time, the contemplative experience of moving beyond our ego self also takes us in many ways beyond words themselves. We find in this canto that the progress of the actual storyline keeps being halted as Dante tries various alternative ways to convey the experience of the pilgrim on this journey. One of the alternative ways, which we have seen all through the Divine Comedy, is the simile, or the extended simile, a device that first appears in Western literature in Homer's epics. Canto 23 begins with a simile extending over nine lines. It takes us all the way back to the natural world here on earth, to a, to a mother bird, full of love, love for the branches and their leaves where she is perched, and love, of course, for her little chicks in the nest. All through the night she waits for the daylight, for the time when she'll be able actually to see her kids again, after the night has obscured them from her sight. And the daylight will also enable her to go off and fetch them food. Not an easy job, but a labor of love, doing good for those she loves. And, and so here she is, alert and watching for the sun to rise. Now this is like what Beatrice was doing, Dante tells us, waiting, watchful, looking up above her, waiting for the metaphorical sun to appear. Waiting, the image suggests, so that she can feed Dante with what will nourish him. Seeing Beatrice like this fills Dante with hopeful expectation, and almost immediately something occurs that perhaps fulfills this hope. The sky, which I suppose really means the region of the sphere above Dante, there's no real sky here. The, the sky is suddenly filled with more light than ever. What is this? Beatrice gives him the astounding news that here before him is the whole company of saints in heaven, including the souls he has already encountered in the lower spheres, who, having returned to the Empyrean, now descend a little lower to this eighth sphere, all coming to Dante himself. I, I think the sequence of what happens is this. Dante is looking at Beatrice, who is looking upwards in expectation. Dante catches that feeling of expectation and looks up in the same direction as Beatrice is looking. Then he sees the sky turning brighter than ever. He turns to look at Beatrice as she explains what that brightness means. And now, looking at Beatrice herself, he finds her eyes so full of joy that, well, he can't even describe it. 
and so that inability to describe her joyful eyes is the second break in the narrative after that initial simile. And then another simile. Just as on a clear night a, a full moon can shine around all the stars, so now Dante can see above all that host of souls shining as individual lights the, the divinity itself, the divine light, the source of all those other lights, the light of the world as the sun lights up our own world. And the light is so bright, it's beyond Dante's ability to keep looking at it. Then another short break in the narrative, just one line, but a kind of climactic line in which Dante simply blurts out all that Beatrice has meant to him. Oh, Beatrice, dolce guida e cara. Oh, Beatrice, you dear sweet guide. Very simple and understated, but often that's the best way to express the deepest things. And Beatrice, who, who must be watching carefully, consoles Dante with the explanation that this light has an energy that no one can resist. It is that wisdom and power that restored the path between earth and heaven, the path that so many longed to find and follow. That is, it is Christ, the one who overcame the sharpness of death and opened the kingdom of heaven to all believers. Then another simile. Just like lightning, as, as they conceived it, just like lightning arose when a fire grew too large to be contained in a cloud and fell to earth as a lightning bolt, against the natural inclination of fire to rise upward, so Dante's consciousness now grows larger and breaks away from his ordinary self into a level of existence that cannot even be recalled. And again Dante turns to Beatrice, who informs him that all of these things he has just undergone, that vision of the earth left behind, the ecstasy of rising out of his smaller self, all this has enabled him now to see her as she really is. Remember that she'd withheld her smile earlier, and now he's strong enough to receive it. And so Dante gazes at Beatrice's heavenly smile. What was it like? <laughs> no, he's completely unable to tell us. Another ineffable moment here. It's like trying to remember your dream when you wake up and it fades away. No amount of poetic inspiration or skill can come near to describing what it was like. All Dante can tell us is that his gratitude can never disappear. This is the climax of all courtly love poetry, the beloved lady bestowing her smile on her lover. But the divine comedy goes far beyond the courtly love tradition, the beloved lady meaning a lot more than just an ideal woman on earth. And so that smile has to be placed in the context of this paradise experience. But it's not easy. In fact, the narrative comes to a complete stop at this point. N not just a stop, but a leap. It has to jump over his response to seeing Beatrice's smile, like, like someone following a path, which suddenly stops at a huge hole in the road or something, and the walker has to jump over that gap. But Dante feels sure that no one could blame him for a gap like this, given the heavenly subject and the merely earth-bound poet. Back to the story now, and to Beatrice again. Why are you staring at my face when over there is a garden blooming under the love of Christ? And in particular, there is the rose that gave birth to the word made flesh. 
and there are the lilies who, with their fragrance, lead people along the good path. So again, Dante, following Beatrice's hints, turns around, even though he has to strain his eyes against the glare. And there's another simile, this time a personal one, of a time when he was standing in the shade, so he could not see the sun above, but he could see in the distance a field of flowers lit up by the sun's rays. Well, that's what it's like for Dante now, seeing all those souls lit by the divine rays, though he could not see Christ, the source itself, who seems to have withdrawn his presence to spare Dante's eyesight. Another halt for a short exclamation of praise and thanksgiving to that kindly heavenly goodness that shone down on these souls, and more than that, allowed Dante to behold them, even though he was not ready to behold the source itself. Dante now focuses on the brightest of the lights there, whom he identifies only as that lovely flower he prays to each morning and evening. A rare personal detail about Dante's life, letting us know that he says an Ave Maria to start and finish the day. I suppose we can take this as a true autobiographical detail, not just a fictional convenience. <laughs> we're so, we're, I mean, we're so far above ego-vaunting that, that there seems to be no need for Dante to insert here something just for show. As Dante gazes at Mary, who appears larger and finer than anyone else in that host, a gleaming light descends from above that circles around Mary's head like a crown and sings with a tone unsurpassed by anything we know on earth, a description of non-description. And Mary herself rises above the human, now a sapphire that makes the heavens glow like a sapphire. The presence who has just descended is generally agreed to be Gabriel, though Dante does not directly name him, and his song is clear enough that Dante can give us the words. Io sono amore angelico, I am angelic love, it sang, and I am circling around that lofty joyfulness that comes from the womb that held safe the world's desire. I shall remain circling you, Lady of Heaven, until you follow your son up to that next sphere, the highest heaven, endowing it with greater divinity because of your presence. Gabriel then stops singing, and all the other souls sing out a response. Dante cannot see the upper ceiling of this sphere that separates it from the highest sphere above the Empyrean. It's much too far above for him to make it out. So Dante cannot see the flame of Mary as she rises up, still with that angelic crown around her, following the path that her seed Jesus has just taken for the second ascension in this canto. Dante cannot see Mary rising up all the way, but he can see that, like a baby, reaching out its arms for Mama after having drunk her milk, all these other flames seem to reach upwards in honour and love for Mary as she departs. The souls, however, remain. There's more for them to do with Dante. They sing Regina Celi in such a wonderful way that the wonder has remained with Dante ever since. Dante comes to the end of the canto praising all these souls here, who, in the final simile, are like a rich harvest stored up in heaven, having been reaped from ripe fields on earth. This is what's called the Church Triumphant, the community of saints who have triumphed during their life on earth, 
a life of tears and exile which they turned into gold. And finally Dante focuses on the one who, in his triumph with others, both Jewish and Christian, holds the keys to heaven. This is St. Peter, whom we will see more of in the next canto. But this canto has finished. It's an odd canto, a special canto. Let's first list what happens, and then list all the different similes interspersed in the canto. Beatrice looks upwards in expectation. Dante joins in her expectation and then sees the sky shine with a resplendent brightness. Beatrice interprets this brightness as the souls of all the saved people in heaven come down from the Empyrean. Dante looks back at Beatrice, whose eyes are indescribably joyful. He looks back to the host of souls and, above them, to a light that is too bright for him to do more than glance at before looking away. Beatrice explains that this light is Christ, and at this point Dante experiences a kind of lightning bolt moment of ecstasy beyond recalling. This moment has transformed Dante further, and Beatrice says he can now look on her smile and see her as she really is. Beatrice then tells Dante to turn around again and look at the souls who are present there, in particular the Virgin Mary and the Apostles. Dante looks and can see all these souls lit by the light of Christ, though that source of light has withdrawn to protect Dante's eyes. Dante now sees an angel, probably Gabriel, descend and encircle Mary, singing praises, followed by all the others' praises. Finally, Mary ascends up out of Dante's sight, leaving apparently every saved soul that ever was right there in front of Dante. He focuses on the one with the keys of heaven, St. Peter. That's a lot of action going on in front of Dante, but Dante himself does nothing except turn back and forth and observe. He, he doesn't even speak. But the similes add more levels of meaning. Most, though not all of them, give us some oblique understanding of the light appearing here, the expectation of the light, the full moon outshining the light of the stars, the lightning bolt's sudden illumination, the sunbeam from behind a cloud lighting up things on earth. The, the, these are all ordinary pictures, not difficult for us to visualize, <laughs> which is good, since the actual light that Dante tells us he is experiencing is beyond anything we can imagine. And yet, as he says in the middle of this canto, he is determined to go on, even if he has to omit the indescribable, and we, understanding this, will of course forgive him. Shall we pause and look for a minute at just one of these similes, the one about the full moon outshining all the other lights in the night sky, just as Christ far outshines all the heavenly souls below him? The simile gives us something we can visualize, as I've said, but there's more in the way Dante speaks about the full moon. He gives the moon its mythological name, Trivia, which stands for the three aspects of the moon goddess, which can offer a rough parallel to the Trinity. The moon is now personified. It doesn't shine, she smiles. And she's not smiling on objects like stars, but on personages, the eternal nymphs. It's no mechanical process going on here but a living, loving relationship up in the sky, analogous to the very living, loving activity 
Dante is seeing now that the Divine Son appears among all those heavenly souls. It's very hard, I think, for us today to take seriously the suggestion that the moon is a goddess smiling on the nymphs around her. No, of course we can't take that seriously. But suppose we tried to give some imaginative thought to the idea that the universe operates not by mathematical movement, but by relationship. An idea that modern science plays with, too, with its understanding of the way vibrant energy is at the base of all things. Images like this one in the canto give us a way to speak about that celestial energy. And because it's a strong poetic image, if we allow it, it can come to life within our imagination and grow into an understanding beyond anything we can predict. I dare you to try playing with it. All right, I know I'm getting a bit carried away here, but come on, why not? How else to respond to a reading about life on the eighth sphere of heaven? If we can't be expansive here, well, where else can we? Christ just appears briefly and then withdraws out of consideration. Even this high, Dante's eyes are not ready to see God. He is ready to see Beatrice as she is, yes, but that's about as high as he can go now. He tells us that he can see all those other souls, but he has to strain a bit to do this. And I, and I wonder if this might suggest something about Limbo, that troublesome region of the Inferno. We tend to see these souls as being punished for not believing in Christ. And yes, that sounds harsh, despite the extenuating circumstances we've just seen with Trajan and Riffius. But look at it this way. The souls in Limbo have not, for whatever reason, undergone the journey Dante has. They have not moved beyond the self into some kind of ecstatic experience. Classical literature is a great treasure house of wisdom and beauty, but it does not, I think, move into these higher states. And without an experience of these higher states, the light of heaven would be unbearably bright for them. So let's not worry too much about the justice of these souls in limbo. They're not being punished, but in a way protected and given the life they chose— of calm, civilized conversation and fellowship. And let's instead consider the souls in limbo as emblems of states of our own psyche, at times when we are virtuous in many ways, but do not go beyond ourself, when we have to turn away from the heavenly light because it's too intense for us. We all know such states, don't we? Let's play a little further with this. Here in this canto we have the characters of Christ and Mary, and indeed every saved soul, all appearing. If we're devout Catholics, we will feel at ease with this kind of language, but if we're not, what do we do? I think we need, all of us, some kind of experiential description of what happens, a description that will translate Dante's scene into everyday experience. So we can start with our Beatrice, that is, with whatever it is that leads us out of our confining egos up into our higher selves. This can be, as I've said before, a person who has been an inspiring presence in our lives, or a book that has opened us up to larger things, or an incident, often, alas, a disaster or a loss, that turns us into a new and better life. 
For the purpose of our game here, let's propose that our Beatrice is George Eliot's Middlemarch, a novel everyone agrees is one of the high points of Victorian literature, uh, of all English literature. And I think one of the great virtues of Middlemarch is that it can open our eyes to the web of relationships all around us, to the realization that our lives are not individual, but enmeshed with so many other people's lives and so many contingent events. In other words, the novel directs us away from our ego self to the larger community, just what the Divine Comedy tells us that the journey to heaven is all about. Now, just as the higher Dante rises, the more beautiful he can see Beatrice becoming, so the higher I am rising, that is, the more deeply I am able to see into Middlemarch, then the more beautiful the book becomes. I can keep gazing at it, reading it, talking about it all the time, and seeing the relationships between the characters more clearly, which helps me understand the characters more deeply and the way they are shaped by what's going on around them. It takes me deeper into the beauty of the book. But remember, Beatrice tells Dante to turn around and see what else is going on, and so I turn away from Middlemarch, and like Dante, I experience a quick, intense vision of Christ, in this case, an understanding of the world as community, with me as just one part of it, and I experience a compassionate appreciation that everyone I come into contact with is living a complex, confused inner life the same as I am. This is what George Eliot calls the book's felt reality, and what Dante here might call his intense, transformative vision of Christ. But then, alas, I, I cannot hold on to this Christ image in my everyday life for very long, because, as George Eliot herself also says in a famous passage, If we had a keen vision and feeling for all ordinary human life, which in the terms of Canto 23 would be, if we could see clearly that vision of Christ in everyday things, if we had a keen vision and feeling of all ordinary human life, it would be like hearing the grass grow and the squirrel's heart beat, and we should die of that roar which lies on the other side of silence. As it is, the quickest of us walk about well wadded with stupidity. And this is Dante's experience in Canto 23. If he could keep seeing that vision of divine love, he would be blinded. He would die of that roar. Christ withdraws himself, wadding us back into stupidity, that protective limitation. But the Christ light is still there, shining through all these souls whom Dante now turns to see. Similarly, to get back to our example, after we have spent time with Middlemarch and had a vision of the kind of loving world presented there, even just a fleeting vision, we then go out into the world and see people in the light of this vision. We see, perhaps, someone who we know is pretty well off, and yet looking miserable, and we realize that even rich people's lives are full of complex personal troubles. Or we realize that when someone does not get back to us with, say, a quote for a job to do in a house, it may not necessarily indicate that this person doesn't care or is incompetent, but perhaps 
that person has been delayed by another job that's turned out more complicated than he had expected. Or maybe he's been called back home to help with his child who's just fallen and broken her arm. We just don't know. But the Christ-like vision of the connected community helps us remember that there are a lot more influences going on all around us than we can be aware of. And it gives us the light to see these other people in a much more loving, grace-filled way. This, I think, is the kind of life experience Canto 23 is presenting to us. Give it some consideration and see if it works for you. We'll stop here for now, and having just focused on St. Peter at the end of the canto, we'll look forward to hearing more from him next time. See you then.